Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which the gang is all together and you keep both disappearing from my Zoom screen. What is going on? Okay, so we are here to discuss a canticle for Leibowitz, or are we? Are we all here? <laughs> I think so. I think we are all here. All right. I think I, I accidentally turned off my video and then Heidi was making fun of me by turning off her yeah. video. <laughs> That's true. Oh, okay, okay. It felt like it was just actually a scene from <laughs> A Canticle for Leibowitz. Um, we were trying to save it. technology. No yeah, ex- ex- exactly, yeah. Okay, so uh, thanks for holding down the fort for me while I was gone. Uh, couldn't couldn't make it for a few episodes because it was crazy. Things were crazy. Um, Glad to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for for uh, continuing on without me. And, we carry uh, on. Yeah. Right. Based on the questions, based on the comments over on the thread, based on the little bit of the episodes that I've listened to, it seems like you had uh, a very interesting conversation. And I don't say that in the, well, that's interesting sort of way, but in the, hey, that's interesting sort of way. Um, but but quickly, before we get into that, though, I, the, the first question for this Q&A episode is, how was your Thanksgiving, Heidi? Oh, it was really great. We had a lot of family in town. And it was really snowy and cold, so we were cooped up inside, oh, nice. which could have gone either way. But thankfully, it was delightful. <laughs> we played games. We cooked a lot. We did some karaoke, which was, I'm sure, a sight to behold. Um, yeah, that, so, that seems like it would yeah, be. <laughs> it was great. We had lots of fun. How about y'all? Yeah, Sean, what about you? Uh, we also had a great Thanksgiving. Um, we have... We have family in town, but they have this odd tradition where every other year they go camping for Thanksgiving. Your in-laws? Yeah. Uh, okay, just like, mean, just the two of them? No, they get a whole bunch of other people to go camping with them. And uh, I okay. mean, some of it, some of them are are glamping. I mean, they've got like RVs and things. Uh, sure. TV, Tiny TVs and houses. fireplaces. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they can still roast uh, the turkey. Yeah. Well, yeah, I used right. to have one of those, and we had like a sous vide and champagne. And... <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, Sheesh, it's hardly camping, uh, but they they prepare this meal out in the at a campsite somewhere, and and I just I'm a firm believer that we spent the last two hundred years fighting to enjoy this holiday in a house. Mm. So, <laughs> yes, America. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so are we, you normally a camper? I. We don't camp often, but I do enjoy camping. It's really just that we don't, but the timing and the opportunity don't always uh, line you just up. Don't want to do like it for camping. Thanksgiving. I don't want to do it for Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah, when you actually have a few days off from teaching and and all that, you want to just that's like right. Stay yeah. in your house, yeah. Okay. And I like to cook, and I'd rather be in my kitchen doing it. Uh, yeah. I mean, you could do some fun things over a fire, but anyway, Thanksgiving in the kitchen. So we stayed home. And we ended up hosting a um, another family from church uh, who came and spent the day with us, and that was really enjoyable. And, nice. Uh, I made yeah. I made the Brussels sprouts, and I know many of out? our listeners did. They're yeah, delicious. that was a big topic of conversation nice. on social media. Yeah, yeah they're. I so made the Brussels delicious. sprouts too. Yeah, yeah, they were great. Nice, nice. But well, we had a uh, we have a new a new person in our family, so that made um, Thanksgiving a newborn turn. Not right. your specific. Not mine. Baby. No, this we have is a, not yeah. David's baby. This is how rumors get started. Yeah, that would be weird if if we, if we had a new baby. Talked about it. Yeah, no. Um, my sister, my uh, sister in law, Renee, had a baby. So Matt and Renee have a little baby born on the same day as my daughter Lydia. So they share a birthday, which is fun. That's uh, five years apart, uh, and so we had a new baby in the in the house for Thanksgiving, and, and Renee's family was all in town and and uh so was fun. A nice, was what did piece. you cook so, david i know you do more like pot big pollock style you're not cooking everything but did you make yeah, anything this year well we went to my in-laws in the morning and then we had second dinner at uh-huh. my parents house so Hot i made like yeah exactly we made a, a i made a, a just a, a large amount of mashed potatoes mm. um i made like cranberry sauce i made i made daniel nairi's rice pudding oh yeah how did that, that turn fun. out Good. It was fun. Fold in some heavy cream and some cranberry sauce in there, you know, for a little uh, Thanksgiving Amazing. theme. Yeah. Um, I made, at some point I made a pie. I don't know. Like the day's kind of... Together, together. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was fun. It was good. It's, it's a good holiday. Uh, and then, but it's like, for us, it's so crazy because we have the one day and then Friday and Saturday are crazy, crazy time in the retail world, of course. So we've been doing 
you know, recovering from that all weekend, kind of. So, stop. well, well, yeah. And then now we have the, now we just move into Christmas season, right? So, <laughs> um, so, so it's a, yeah, it's an important time of year. Um, I hope everybody who's listening had a wonderful Thanksgiving themselves. We are, of course, We're very thankful grateful. for you. Yeah, exactly. We are thankful close for all readers. the listeners, for yeah, this right. whole Close Reads community. Um, so, um, you know, I, I posted a little thing on Substack about it, but um, you guys really mean a lot to us. And thank you for the ways that you support and encourage uh, and inspire uh, all the things that we're doing here. And thank you for appreciating um, and participating in what we're doing. So I just wanted to say that as well. Um, before we get into these uh, Q&A, one more bit of... Uh, more bit of information. The next book is okay. It's it's a Chevy, right? Chinois you, Chevy. Chinois Chevy. His book "Things Fall Apart." We're going to do that coming up. We're going to divide that into three episodes. The third one, of course, will be the Q and A, and that will air. That'll drop right around Christmas Day time. Uh, hopefully, Ooh. we'll have it up for the weekend before Christmas because Christmas Day is a Monday. Of course, maybe we'll get it. Try to get it up for you for your um for your um like errands and cooking time and all Last that. Minute the tricky wrapping. thing about that is that the episode, it's hard to get all the questions in. So it might actually have to go up a few days after Christmas, depending you know, like how the, the Q&A uh, shakes out. We're going to do that uh, in two parts though. So the first episode is going to be on part one. And then the second episode is going to be on parts two and three. Part one is um, a little bit longer than part two. So the exciting thing is we are going to have the three of us. And then Tim is also going to be coming on for that one as well. So all four of us are going to be on. That's our last book of the year. Um, but that's not the only content we have in December for you. As usual, we are going to uh, share our favorite reads of the year. We're going to have our end of the year sort of summary episode. And that will drop. Um, read some books. My thinking is we'll probably drop that episode on the Christmas weekend in case the Q&A has to get pushed back a couple of days because of just giving you guys enough time to send in questions. Um, we also are not starting things fall apart until the 11th because part one's a little longer gives you a little bit extra time to read it also gives us time to get the schedules for all four of us worked out but sean and heidi and i have a very special episode we've been circling for a while kind of a one-off uh fun episode uh that we're going to air next monday on december 4th i say air like it's the radio we're going to drop it on podcast distribution apps everywhere on the fourth so um we're looking forward to that. It's going to be a good time. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about it now, but I think Sean has really been like uh, prepping for this one. It seems like, you know, I prepped a long time ago. Oh, okay, yeah, because we talked I, about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to get. But my I still head feel in the good game. about my the work that I did. Yeah. <laughs> it's a document you. sitting somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so we're not gonna. I'm not gonna say what it is yet, but you'll you'll find out soon enough. But I think we're gonna have a good time with that. Um, and then, and then, as I said, dive into things fall apart, have our end of the year episode. And then after that, we'll be end of 2024 and we'll be in, I mean, end of 2023, we'll be digging into a 2024 schedule. Now, the first book on the 24 schedule, I don't know if I've talked to you about this, Heidi and Sean, was going to be Summer Lightning, the PG Woodhouse book. Cause I thought, mm -hmm. let's kick the year off with something fun, something a little light. But the trick is that that book is currently backordered everywhere that I can find it. So I'm not sure if enough people were able to get their hands on it. So I'm going to have to dig around a little bit and see if enough readers have it for us to kick off the year with that. So we Let might have to know, switch that around. Readers. Yeah, if you if you didn't get it yet and you can't find a copy, let us know. Um, we might have to do like the summer book because I want to do one summer, one in the winter. I think it'd be funny. Um, <laughs> so we'll, we might have to switch those around or, or we'll just do something else but uh maybe we'll, maybe we should just do station 11 in the dead of winter um but i don't <laughs> know about station it. 11 this close to uh <laughs> to canticle so anyway that's a quick summary of things that are coming up and things that we're needing to decide now speaking of deciding it's time to answer some questions about canticle for Leibowitz. and um let's start with this one are you guys ready to, to dig into this i have not even looked at the questions this is i haven't either I don't know. So yes, <clears throat> it's better. I'm blind. Yeah, it's, strong it's, answer to that. Yes, it, I'm ready. It, it's better to not look at the questions. I think. Okay, so I want to start with this one from Kara. So she asks over on Substack on the Q and A thread. She says, "So many thoughts um, and questions between the space trilogy, Kristen Lavern's daughter, and this book. Oh yeah, by the way, more Kristen episodes coming soon as well. So between oh, yeah. the space trilogy, Kristen Lavern's daughter, and this book, you are all are speaking my heart language." I have been trying to understand. Uh, yeah, and I was actually wondering, do you think there's a there's some kind of a computer out there that can translate that language to other heart languages? No. 
Okay. No, right. it cannot because po- it's no. It's the nature of heart, heart language. Language is human. Okay. And I have a heart. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So she says, I've been trying to understand the importance of the memorabilia and Leibowitz himself. The source of hope in the book seems to be the existence of the monks and their way of life rather than the knowledge of what they are preserving. Their concept and use of time is in direct contrast to progress and their slowness seems to be a submission to something greater than their own goals. Because of their way of life, the monk's very existence is sacramental and comes to the climax with the abbot at the end of the story. His defiance to the mercy camp is a result of a way of life that has been preserved rather than the knowledge that they have preserved. My question is this. Well, let me rephrase that, say that one emphasis a little bit differently there. His defiance to the mercy camp is a result of a way of life that has been preserved rather than the knowledge they have preserved. My question is this, said Kara. Are the memorabilia important for any practical reality or is it a means to a way of life that needs to be preserved for the sake of our humanity? Okay. Heidi, give this one to you first. I think Sean, you and I talked about this a little bit. It feels to me a bit more like a wondering than a definitive answer. But I think, I think, Kara, I think you're onto something that the way of life, the preservation is more human than, than the memorabilia itself. Um, And I, I like that because it puts the emphasis and keeps the emphasis of the story on on the people and the human interactions uh, and the uh, the sense of uh, how do I say this like a stasis of a sacramental life, like the recurring rhythms of a sacramental life that are life-giving to the people um, in, in the midst of the recurrent rhythms of destruction that are being played out on the historical stage. I'm kind of seeing like wheels within wheels, like a fixed point within this revolution of destruction that that is... Um, emphasized within the story. The same kinds of terrible things are happening um, while uh, on on the world stage uh, and the political stage, um, while at the same time, there's this kind of fixed points in which the rhythms or the revolutions are smaller and more yearly, um, but more life-giving and the preservation of the human soul seems to be held higher than the preservation of human culture. Sean, do you agree mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, I definitely. Uh, I, as you were, as you were talking, I was reminded of one of my favorite Roger Scruton quotes. Uh, nice. Uh, from my heart how, language, Sean. <laughs> uh, from how to be a conservative. He talks about, the assumptions that the conservative ethos sort of begins from. And uh, one of the things he says is that the, the work of destruction is quick and easy and exhilarating. The work of creation, slow, laborious, and dull. And he says that this is why conservatives often uh, start from a disadvantage in the public arena because their position is true but boring. And the position of their opponents is exciting but false. And uh, I think the monks are are uh, a great emblem of that. They have this work that is worthy and true, but it's uh, it's in some ways a much more difficult and uninspiring <laughs> task on the surface uh, because they are they're simply trying to maintain what has been made but that 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 task is a healthier task as far as the soul is concerned yeah i think there is also a sense in the book of the intrinsic value of the memorabilia uh, yeah. that it's not symbolic it's real it's concrete it's actual and it matters uh and but that it matters not because of how useful it is, 
for its intrinsic value, but for the, like what you just said, that it's an artifact, that it's something that's been made and something that's been made with care. It's so precise. Um, and, uh, and so I like the fact that it's, um, kind of disconnected from use that it, what it is useful. It was useful in its time, but no longer has utilitarian value, but it still has an intrinsic value. Yeah. It's been Uh, made. It's, it's the work of humanity. Right. Uh, and it's in the same way that, and I, I'm really bad about not caring as much about these things as I should, but it's like the art project that your child brings home from school. <laughs> right. The the value of that thing, maybe it's even a useful thing. Uh, you know, like, a, like, this doesn't happen anymore, but when kids used to make ashtrays in mm-hmm. art class. Pinch pots. Right? That's Yeah, how, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I have my kids' uh, little pinch ashtrays. pots in <laughs> preschool. Um, it's it's not necessarily. Sean, were you in school in 1958? Yeah, making ashtrays. Yeah, mom, I made you another ashtray (laughs) since you threw the last one at me. And uh, yeah, Uh, different times, simpler times. Wait, were you Uh, as a ten year old? Were you also in the mob? (laughs) Here, ma, here's an ashtray. (laughs) I made it for you. For you. It's not about the pragmatic usefulness of the object so much as it is about the value inherent in it because of uh, its source. I think that's part of the value of the memorabilia and why it matters that it's preserved uh, and that that's part of what the monks are always wrestling with because the trade-off is that mankind, you know, is not always, (laughs) it's not always good. Uh, And so to... To preserve the works of man is parallel to that the bigger question of the book, you know, is it worth preserving man himself? And uh, I think the value placed upon the memorabilia helps suggest or imply an answer to that bigger question. Yeah, it's evidence that something existed. That's and right. that's like not a small thing. Yeah. I was actually thinking about this the other day because for a while I kept a... Um, this is not really that relevant, but it's kind of relevant. Anyway, um, I was uh, always lead a comment with with. I don't know if this matters, but um, <laughs> this will disappoint you. For, for a while, I kept like a log book where I would like oh. basically log what I did for that day and like the things that happened to me. It was not a diary in the sense that it was like I wasn't really reflecting. It was more like um, a diary in the sense that the British person means it. When they right, say yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it was in the sense that like, you know, I might record, okay, well, this is what the, the, the shop was like today. Uh, interesting guy came in such and such. This is what, you know, this is what I like. Sometimes I would even be like, mention the weather or something. Hmm. And at the, and I felt really stupid doing it. <laughs> and I didn't really understand why I was doing it, but then, then I, I started doing it and, and then I stopped because I kind of like lost the habit. And I was like, I convinced myself that it was okay not to do it to get out of the habit because I was like, it doesn't matter anyway. So a couple months ago, I found that logbook in a drawer and I pulled it out and I started reading it. And I was like, this, I'm really glad I have this mm-hmm. because it, there's things that, like things related to the shop, for example, that it helped me create some context for, for today, you know, for even though it was a year and a half ago. And there's things about my children that I remembered and there's just random things that, I was actually really glad that I had evidence of what happened that day because otherwise they just the days just kind of get forgotten. They just kind of roll up, you know, like a like a uh, tumbleweed or something, and then they just kind of yeah. drift away if you're not careful about preserving the memory of them. And some days you want to remember more than others, um, but in a way, I was most interested in reading about what was least memorable hmm. because it showed kind of the summary of the collection of my hours. And um, I think there's real value in having evidence of things that existed. Um, I think existence, I mean, this is like trite, but existence matters. <laughs> and if you just, if you just ignore it and you just for your, you know, well, if you forget it, you're doomed to repeat it. Right. Which is kind of part of the point of this, this book. Um, so anyway, that didn't, that wasn't really that relevant, but that's a story that I told badly. I love it. <laughs> it was totally relevant. That's right. Um, so, and the story that's worth telling is worth telling badly. You can tell that I've uh, I've been off doing this for a couple of weeks. I'm out of practice. Okay, this is a question from Hannah. 
says, this is my second read of Canticle. Loved it both times. What struck me most this time around was the choice to send the memorabilia on with the monks into space when it feels like a modern sci-fi author may have made uh, Abbott, uh, made the Abbott, uh, lost my line, send the monks on without the memorabilia. This, to me, is the truest indication that Miller's worldview is hopeful. Are any of you sci-fi readers? Do you feel current sci-fi is similarly hopeful? And if not, what has changed in American culture or publishing culture caused this? Sean, what do you think? You first. <laughs> that's that's a fascinating question and observation. I really like it. I, I would, I've talked about this maybe on the air before, and I've had some great uh, conversations with close readers recently about my desire to become more of a sci-fi reader. And uh, the, though I think of this as one of my favorite books, uh, it's kind of an anomaly among the books that I tend to read. Uh, so I don't, I can't speak about the state of contemporary sci-fi. Uh, maybe one of you can do a little bit better on that regard. Uh, but I, yeah, I do think that modern sci-fi is less hopeful what I when I encounter it. Uh, it seems like early sci-fi is sort of growing out of the same sources and seeds as um, fantasy literature to a degree, uh, and that there's this more deep-seated sense of hope in a lot of fantasy literature than there is in, in sci-fi. Uh, I think of like The Martian. Uh, I read The Martian a handful of years ago when it came out. And uh, and it was like a hopeless, materialistic version of Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where the only thing, the only source of hope was man's ingenuity and possibly sheer dumb luck and that neither of those things inspires a lot of confidence in me <laughs> uh and so if that's the thread running through a lot of contemporary science fiction uh then yes i think that this is probably a more hopeful example uh, than what you're likely to find nowadays but i i couldn't say for sure I like the comparison that you made from sci-fi to fantasy because both of them are essentially like thought experiments right. told in stories. Like what if, like imagine a world where, right? Um, and uh, and then the author gets to world build, which is always the fun part of reading and I'm sure of writing both sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, and then also answer the questions or propose um, like a framework or scaffolding in order to understand the complexities of, you know, societies or individuals within the parameters of the thought experiment. Uh, and, and in this thought experiment, we're given in, in a canticle for Leibowitz, um, we are, we're given a proposal for, uh, what it means, like what matters, what's worth preserving. Um, and in, with our monks shot into space at the end, uh, yes, I think that is inherently hopeful for sure, especially that they have the memorabilia with them and that they are bringing themselves. And I really like the emphasis on Brother Joshua uh, and his own kind of moral dilemma and his own philosophical and theological questions that he's wrestling with as he hurdles off into space, carrying the hope of humanity with him. Um, yeah. Because that is that shows that... Um, that hope is always a human endeavor and it always has an element of risk, um, on, both on the philosophical and theological level and then on the very practical level. Um, and I kind of feel like at the end of, of the novel, we're left on earth. Um, but we have this sense that, that, that there are monks in space, you know, glory to God. Um, and <laughs> that's the novel I want to yeah. read is the monks whose monastery is the spaceship. Honestly, that was I know. <laughs> Can we right? get more of that? Um, so yeah, I do think that that's hopeful. And I like the fact that, that Hannah honed in on that and mm -hmm. saw that as, as like deeply important to the novel. We are not just left yeah. with this creepy second head that might or might not be awesome. Um, we're also, um, we also have monks in space carrying on human culture, uh, but 
there's always, there's still that element of risk, that, that big giant question mark that hangs over the whole thing. Which I guess that's I think, faith. I think science fiction has always been about making, I don't want to say an argument, making, making a point. That's right. Like I from agree. the beginning, it's always been about responding to an anxiety in, in a way, whether you're looking at, you know, HG Wells or uh, the great John Wyndham from the, 50s and 60s, by the way, if you want to read great science fiction, read, read John Wyndham. Um, Sean, you, you love him. Or whether you get into, you know, the, the contemporary stuff, the, um, the Annihilation trilogy and mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. Yeah, or even like Gene Roddenberry, if you know, if you want to think yeah. TV as an analog. Yeah. Dax think, reading Asimov right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Asimov, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. iRobot. Um, I mean, anything like that is about, there's a, we might, this might be a problem. Or are we overstepping? It's like some kind of question gets asked, and right. then you're creating you're creating a story in response to that question. Um, I think the concerns are just a little bit different now. the The world, the genre has gotten more sophisticated, in a sense, for better or for worse, and the world mm-hmm. has gained more knowledge about the things that showed up in early science fiction. So they have that you know we the that that creates its own set of problems and i think in many ways science fiction is kind of a mirror of the culture at large when it comes to worldviews so if if the worldview of the culture at large is more nihilistic than science fiction generally speaking is going to be particularly the stuff that is most popular it's true of also gothic and horror literature as well um and that's why i think certain genres uh are not as popular right now because they don't lend themselves to the worldview of the age as well um or they don't that they fall apart once you start applying that worldview to the trend. Right. Yeah, they're genre. not suited to that worldview. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that it's a really interesting question that Hannah's on here as as far as the hopefulness, because what usually happens in sci-fi is you have a character, you have a problem that's happening in some different place or in the future or something that is seemingly unrecognizable to us, but has just enough recognition to make it seem possible and then you have some kind of a character who is trying to respond to that problem you know like an irobot like that character is essentially your hero right and they get called to be the warrior for the you know for the story or whatever in this one we don't really get somebody out there trying to fight against or fight against the bad robots or whatever it is you just have these guys who are just carrying on something that's older. You know, they're they're not. I mean, at one point he do, the the abbot does punch a guy, right? And that's the only <laughs> point we really have the, them participating that's in any kind of real point. violence. We don't have like a resistance to, to an right. evil regime or something. It's right. Like Star and Wars. Even in dystopian fi- fiction, you often would have your yeah, you're fighting against the Darth Vader or the evil empire or the 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 robots that have that are that are popping up and taking over. Um, these guys are just continuing along and in a way that that in of itself is more hopeful um just by that that one like the the concern with things that are more quotidian is a kind of a hopeful concern because you're saying that that's how we preserve culture it's not in the the facing off of the the enemy it's in underneath it all preserving the things that are worth preserving which is almost just everyday life yeah and it's not that those other forces aren't present. Like there is a, uh, you know, dictator who is sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing nefarious things, but there's nuclear uh, war, man. So yeah, there's nuclear, the, the threat of nuclear war and then actual nuclear war. And all of that is somehow a secondary concern. Like it's not, uh, it's rendered less powerful because it's, it's, uh, depicted as less, important or concerning than this other work that's going on. Mm. Heidi, here's a question from Tom. Oh, it's our friend Tom Pope. Tom. <clears throat> Tom says, Rachel, uh, the the sort of strange two-headed character, seems to, well, yeah, I will go to She's the second head. Yeah, the right. second head, yeah. <laughs> seems to be presented as a shocking and mysterious response to the fundamental question of Miller's novel. To what extent do you think she's anticipated by books one and two of Canticle? Oh, I like that question. I was thinking about that, actually, laying in bed, you know, thinking about many, many things. As one, one does. Of them. 
uh, was Rachel and I was thinking about the Pope's children yeah, um, and the idea of, and I was thinking about Christ's words, right? To love the least of these. Um, and the Pope's children are the closest that we get to monsters in the story, mm-hmm. especially in book one in which the, um, in which our very, you know, beloved protagonist is murdered by one and the, and the, um, the illuminated manuscript of the memorabilia is stripped from him. And so we are clearly set up to be afraid of, to fear and be repulsed by the Pope's children. Um, and that even that term Pope's children is used as a derogatory term, um, not truly as people to be embraced and loved. Um, and, but then that, that perception is inverted um, or maybe reverted is a better word. Um, and in the final section, um, in that that the new a new form of life has come from this deformed, rejected, and marginalized group. Um, the people that and literally in book three are being told that we're better off dead than becoming one of them, right? And uh and and Mrs. Grails is abhorrent even to uh, our hero. Um, yeah. even to the abbot, um, and, and Rachel and Rachel cannot be, you know, baptized or received into the church as a person in her own right, which makes sense to me. Right. <laughs> I would do the same thing. Like there's no indication, uh, that, uh, that this is going to happen. And yet when it does, it's one of those moments, I think that, uh, that you get in great novels when you're completely surprised by it, but it, but it's the only thing that could have happened. Right. Um, and, and so I think she is, and I think Rachel is anticipated, but I think at the end, we're supposed to, as, as, as David, as you said, I think we're supposed to still be unsettled by it. Like but up to the last page, we're not supposed to be applauding, right? We're supposed to know how very strange that is, how weird it is, uh, and how hope and um, and every new era of, uh, of everything new in human history is always has that element of like um, strangeness and not just mystery, but um weirdness yeah and truly bizarre yeah i think though that that the book prepares for this moment i love i love tom's questions and i because i can almost hear tom asking the question uh and tom's such a good teacher that you can kind of anticipate that he has he knows he knows the answer (laughs) Come like to our has, events, cross yeah, readers, some, and then we will know you some, and speak well of you on air like that's this. Right. Yeah. Tom always has some like glimmer in his eye as he's asking a question. Like he knows where this question is going to lead us. Uh, and so I don't know if this, Tom, is what you were partly thinking of. But uh, along with the depiction of the Pope's children in book one, we get that uh, aside about how uh, the battles that have been fought in the church to preserve the dignity uh, dogmatically, to preserve the dignity of the Pope's children uh, and to make it a crime punishable by excommunication uh, to forbid uh, certain human rights to the Pope's children. And so there is even running there this thread of the church's work uh, that is uh, unpopular or difficult, uh, right? Because then the first Pope's child that we meet is this <laughs> two-headed cannibal uh, who murders our favorite character. Uh, but fast forward to the end of book three and uh, the uh, the semblance or uh, vestige of, of dignity for these uh, deformed or mutated aberrations uh, is the thing that makes it possible for Rachel to be uh, to be whatever she becomes at the end of the novel, uh, right? One of the language is something like any anything born alive has to be helped, uh, or you know, uh, to continue in that life. And uh, yeah, I think that is a, a really nice way that Miller closes that loop in book three. 
having done that, laid that groundwork in book one, whether he knew it at the time or not. Should we, Heidi, do you want to add to that or should we? Uh, no. <laughs> all right, we got, I want to get a couple more questions here as usual, they, you know. As usual. Disclaimer, it's a bit of an awkward transition sometimes. Um, let's do, um, let's talk a bit more about Rachel since Tom brought it up. James asks, uh, does anyone think that Rachel might be the one that the wandering uh, Jew slash Benjamin slash Lazarus had been looking for? Rachel was the beloved of Jacob, Israel, and she was the mother of Benjamin. And could she be a symbol of the meek inheriting the earth or what's left of it? Heidi? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that when that when Benjamin, when the wandering Jew comes uh, into the banquet hall, uh, he's looking for the Messiah. And I don't think that Rachel is a Messiah. Like, I don't think that she's, she's the fulfillment of the prophecy. She's not, she's not necessarily, she's not a Christ figure. Um, She is a, I, I, I read her more as a um, kind of a transfiguration of the deformities that have come out of such a decaying um, and embattled world. Um, But she's not intended, at least not in my reading to be a, a Christ figure. Um, but I think that in terms of what is the question behind the question, right? What is, if, if they're looking for the Messiah, the Messiah has already come according to the Catholics, right? Then what's the next step for humanity? Somebody like Rachel, um, somebody who has been damaged and yet can, can, can rise from the ashes and kind of a Phoenix like, um, image, uh, come to life out of death. Um, and so in that sense, I think that we're all looking for Rachel, um, but we, she's unexpected in this novel. I, I've never, I I'm so blown away by this, by Rachel. I just have to like hats off to, to Walter Miller. It's rare that I'm surprised and like uplifted and grossed out at the same time. (laughs) And I just think this may be the only that's like a unique experience in my reading life to come across something like this. Usually I feel like very well prepared. There's not a lot of things that you can throw at me that I'm not like ready for, but this one was completely surprising to me. Um, and so in that sense, I think, yeah, all the characters are, we're all, uh, we're all waiting for a Rachel, but then when she shows up, we're like, ew. Yeah. That's uh. the, that's the best part about it. Usually these kinds of, characters or images in the culminating moments of novels are either very comfortable and easy to embrace or they they seem ridiculous and they're easy to reject yeah and uh, Rachel is neither of those you, you can't make her sentimental like there's right. no sentimental feeling about her and yet she's this like yeah. there's no precious moments yes. version of Rachel right. yeah. exactly she seems to be in line with the you idea that imagining a precious moment statue of Rachel <laughs> Thank you for saying that, Sean. <laughs> we need someone out there who's industrious and artistic to do a drawing of that, a sketch for yeah, us. Yeah, that's right. She seems to be in line with the idea that when Christ came, people thought he was going to be like a warrior king, right? Right. And it's he's he was different than what than what they thought. Yeah. But I also think, I mean, did you talk last week about her as like a Marian figure or like a bit? But we like did. She yeah. reminds me of the Go character on. in Children of Men. Yeah, in Children of Men's the story about basically for whatever reason the world can no longer have children, so the basically everything's going to end, right? But then a woman is discovered, a young woman is discovered, pregnant, and then the main character's job is to whisk her away to safety. You may have seen the movie, which is probably a little more well known than P.D. James's novel. Maybe even better than the novel. I don't. Uh, well, it's very different. They are but, very different. Yeah. yeah. Um. But um. So in a way, she seems like. To, I read her that she's she's a miracle that is meant to be. If there's a future, she's the future isn't isn't her. If there's yeah. a future for people, um, it's it's in her. Despite how sort of essentially grotesque she is, um, and that's why she gives the abbot the elements and doesn't need to be baptized because she's like. It seems to me I would read that like she's free of sin that the right. suggestion the immaculate conception which was the nightmare that turned out to be not a nightmare 
but it right. still kind of is like it's a very very cool mixed and, yeah strange yeah. okay yeah. i want to i want to do this question here from emily um we got a couple of questions about it um and she says i'm wondering what the last paragraph the seaplane the shark the shrimp i get that it's all bad news for earth but the oceanic setting surprised me it felt out of place with the scenes and matter largely desert from the rest of the book i feel like i missed something how did that last paragraph land with you um mm. william had also asked based on the last paragraph of the novel do you think that all natural life on earth ended what would that mean for rachel and old lazar sean let's talk about this um she Emily mentions that she feels like she kind of missed something because it was so uh -huh. different. So what's your uh -huh. what's your thoughts on on how on the dissonance that gets introduced there in that final paragraph? And I can read it if you guys want if you don't remember what it is. We uh, should probably read it. Yeah, just yeah, we for should our read it. I, rem yeah. I remember it very well. Um, but let's read it. Okay, so they've just lifted the children into the ship. Yeah. And um Joshua shakes his he shakes his sandals at, at the earth and then it says there came a blur a glare of light a high thin whining sound and the starship thrust itself heavenward the breakers beat monotonously at the shores casting up driftwood an abandoned seaplane floated beyond the breakers after a while the breakers caught the seaplane and threw it on the shore with the driftwood it tilted and fractured a wing there were shrimp carousing in the breakers and the and the whiting that fed on the shrimp and the shark that munched the whiting and found them admirable in the sport of brutality of the sea. I and mean, here's the final paragraph. A wind came across the ocean, sweeping it with a palm of white, of fine white ash. The ash fell into the sea and into the breakers. The breakers washed dead shrimp ashore with the driftwood. Then they washed up the whiting. The shark swam out to his deepest waters and brooded in the old clean currents. He was very hungry that season. Okay, Sean, give us the answer. <laughs> the answer. Have at uh, it. I, I can't promise that, but I will say that every time I read the this uh, conclusion, I think of, and maybe just because of my other some of my other training and interests, but I think of Genesis. Jaws. I think of Genesis oh. 1. Not Jaws so oh. much. <laughs> Believe it or not, most any other time I'm thinking Trumped about Jaws. It's the Bible, David. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I should have right. guessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think about Genesis, uh, <clears throat> right? The all all of the world is created out of chaos or disorder, which is pictured as water without form. And uh, right, you Bruce Lee fans out there know how water is formless. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google some Bruce Lee videos. Bruce Lee. Kind of annoying, Google but, Bruce Lee water, but he he says some cool stuff. All right, bring it back, uh, bring it back. Anyway, now. bring it back, bring it back. If you're related to Bruce Lee, I'm so sorry I said that about him, but let's get over it. Uh, right, but the the spirit of God hovers over those waters, and then separates the waters to bring forth land, uh, and then there are all these divisions. It separates out day from night, light from darkness. Uh, animal life from the earth itself, man from woman. And uh, it seems like this is a picture of all of those ordering separations kind of being undone. Things are breaking the work of man, like the, the, the thing that man has made the seaplane uh, is, is broken. And uh, all of the diversity of life is being gobbled up, right? The shrimp are being eaten by the fish and the fish is being eaten by the shark. Uh, and a wind is coming across the ocean and there are still deep and old clean currents out in the water. Uh, and so it seems even here like a kind of hopeful image, uh, a returning to the where life and creation begins. Uh, but, <clears throat> and, and that, uh, there's also no more or an end to death, right? There's a limit to death. The shark is eating and devouring, but he's going to be very hungry uh, because at some point there's no more to nothing else to devour. But uh, there's deep water and there are old clean currents, right? There are things that have not been contaminated by the chaos that has just occurred. Uh, it seems like a, a resetting. Uh, in the same way that Rachel is a kind of uh, suggestion of the potential for new 
life. I don't think I don't see it as uh, depressing, and I see it as uh, an attempt to uh, draft on an established biblical image. Yeah, it, it seems to me that it, I wouldn't say it gives an answer. Right. It's, yeah, not, it's, it's, not, it's enigmatic. Right. But it, it suggests, it doesn't tell us the end result, but it suggests the possibility of new life. You know, th- that in the deep waters and in, and in Rachel, there is the possibility of hope. And in the, right. and in the, the, the people that are headed off to, with the memorabilia to, to space, but then it, it's, it's going to take some cleansing and some time. And it also reminds me a bit of the flood. Yeah. Um, is Rachel, is she on board an ark somewhere? Um, or is the ark perhaps the monks in space, the monks in space in their, in their, <laughs> in their flying monastery. Um, so yeah, I think you're, I think you're right on the Genesis thing, but also I think we should consider the possibility of Jaws. Heidi, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Um, I also, I, I love, I love what both of you said. Um, and I think that it's important with, along with the hope to acknowledge the predatory and um, destructive like violence of the ending as well like the right. the that that the earth is returning to the chaos from which it was created um and so there is hope but there's also a full depth of acknowledgement of the destruction as you brought up david with the flood also i think it's significant that the book ends in or begins in a desert and ends in in the ocean and so mm-hmm. there's that um idea of the earth being destroyed in fire and water Right, goes from the dry to it goes from the complete dryness and um, uh, of the desert after the this apocalyptic experience um, to the uh, to the flooding, right of um, and and the depths of that. Um, so they're both very destructive images, but also um, I do think hopeful for sure because of the things that you said. Uh, I think that you need to have a hopeful mind to get to the hope in this yeah, story. Um, yeah. And so I, I keep, I keep being very moved by the mingling of destruction and hope. Mm-hmm. He seemed uh, Miller seems to have a sort of hopeful outlook overall, but also a deeply cynical sense of what was likely to happen or of the capacity, the great capacity for evil that people have and the way that they'll, uh, ruin each other. Um, and so it's like both of those things are there to your point, Heidi. Yeah. It's like, it, that's why it's, a, it's both dystopian and like spiritual. <laughs> right. Um, here's a question by Tori. It was only after I had finished the book that I stopped to consider which parts of the book felt sci- sci-fi or would have to its original audience. The third section just felt so current, um, modern and familiar just with different terminology, just as the earlier parts felt somewhat familiar to my understanding of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance with a different terminology. But it would have felt much more futuristic at the time of the publication before video chat and self-driving cars. Well, it clearly misses some modern things like the internet and has the largely unexplained space colonies which are still futuristic to us today. How do you think the third part, feeling more advanced, would have changed the emotional weight of the conclusion? Does it hit differently if it's a society like ours does it hit different if it, if if it's a society like ours ends this way versus a society so much more advanced than ours ends this way? How do you what do you think? Hmm. Um, I think for me, I can only speak for myself. The idea of the rival camps felt like a really, I would. I was glad that there was like they're they're in this desert and there's these rival like a death camp and a preservation of life camp like literal camps. Um yeah. And that image in my mind just feels perfect for this novel and I'm so I'm glad that it doesn't have a more quote air quote realistic whatever that means in the context of a book like this um portrayal of modern life because I liked the idea of like two fundamentally different postures towards human life, kind of battling it out in the wilderness for supremacy or like which, which way of 
thinking is going to be most helpful to the remnants of humanity? Uh, and um, and can they find any common ground, either literally or de- ideologically? Um, and that feels very true to life right now. Even though we don't have literal camps, we have ideological camps kind of battling it out on the wasteland to try. Yeah. Um, and and that in that sense, it felt very modern and relatable. Sean, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that I think that aside from what to us seem more. Uh, mundane, but but to the original audience, the features that would have seemed more fantastical and far off, like self-driving cars. I think that a lot of the life in part three uh, is so universal that I don't know. Um, I don't know if Miller meant meant to set it in a far off future. Uh, Right. I think that I can imagine I can imagine readers in the 60s or 70s also feeling like this isn't really that different from the life that we live in, especially if you're still if you're living through the Cold War. Uh, I can I could imagine it being really easy to say, yeah, well, except for the self-driving cars, this this could be our life. And but the fact that it even those superficial differences are not differences for us anymore, I think is more striking. Uh, It's more alarming that we are living in the kind of age that Miller imagined as a possible future where man destroys himself. And uh, it's not a, it's not a future anymore. (laughs) Like it's a parallel present. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's striking in its own right. Um, I agree with that. I think because, if our civilization, if any civilization crumbled, any time in history, anywhere, people will go to, they will go to a refugee camp or a monastery, right? Like that yeah. is that is what will happen. We might go to the bombed out shells of Walmart, but it'll be the same life as these people are living, right? <laughs> right. And um, and that felt very realistic and relatable, and and I like that actually. Walter Miller for a sci-fi novel is, I mean, he does very little world building at all. Like it's yeah. all referential. It's, it's mm-hmm. referential and to uh to to what. It's an imaginary kind of re- return to what has been done in human culture all uh, up up until now, right. um, and then an imaginary uh, and I think very realistic sense of asking what happens within any culture. What would happen if it crumbled, and yeah. and it would be something like this. It would, and that that's interesting to me. The other thing I noticed when I was reading this, and this it goes a little bit to this question is um is that we the memorabilia is the thing being preserved in the monastery but the monastic life has uh they still have everything that they need for that to happen. They still have sacraments. They still have, they still speak Latin 4,000 years in the future, right? Um yeah. uh they that that to me seems like the thing that Walter Miller is saying needs to be preserved. Um and 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 that's never really under attack in the novel, which I has got to be intentional on Walter Miller's part and saying yeah. like this would continue in the crumbling of culture. We would still have an enduring religious life that will be passed from one generation to the next, uh, and 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 that is absolutely worth preserving um, and remains preserved because the people that are there know how important it is. And I think we kind of without some consciously and probably some readers unconsciously cling to that as a lifeline uh, throughout the whole novel and that that remains the lifeline here at the end when we have these literal warring camps. Well, and that's why throughout history when dictators or conquerors or whatever have come in and tried to take over a culture, they would try to eliminate the religious aspects That's of it right. and convert them right. yeah. to whatever, yeah, to whatever religious uh, structure you were already operating right. under. New, it replaced uh, it with a new <clears throat> ideology. Yeah. Um, hey, let's do two more questions here. Um, 
Sean, this one's for you. You guys touched on the titles of each. This is from Aubrey. You guys touched on the titles of each section in one of the episodes, and I was wondering if you can go more in depth about the meaning of them and how they fit with the story. Do you have any further thoughts on on the three titles here? And then Heidi, I've got a question for you. Yeah, we have. Uh, we touched. We touched on it a little bit, at least. We in- did. We have Fiat Homo and Fiat Looks and Fiat Volantastua. Yeah, I think. I think maybe just to tie them back to my comments about the final lines of the book, uh, the parts one and two are Latin for the words that God speaks when he creates uh, man and light, uh, respectively. In Not in that order, though, uh, but uh, uh, fiat lux, let there be, it's the subjunctive uh, <laughs> for all of you who care, uh, let there be light. And then, you know, let there be man, and or let us make man. And then fiat voluntas tua, uh, thy will be done. And uh, it's, the, the title of part three is really fascinating because it's ambiguous whose will is spoken of there. Uh, I think the final lines of the novel lead back, lead us back to, uh, this concept of a, and even the 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 mission into space, this concept of God having an overarching will that governs even catastrophic uh, or evil events, but then also uh, that man's will is radically free, uh, so much so that he can destroy himself if he really puts his mind to it. Like we are given uh, that, over to our will to destroy. That's right. That's right. We are given over to our own will Lord, have mercy. Uh, to destroy. And uh, that's the fruit, right? <laughs> uh, and yet, man is not, at least the story argues, uh, and I think actual history bears out, man is not powerful enough to to destroy himself utterly, uh, even though he would, or, or maybe uh, God's will always checks that ability uh, in some miraculous or grace-filled way. And so I think there's, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, play in the double meaning of the title of part three, man's will and God's will. Uh, Part two as well, the idea of let there be light is is ambiguous, right? Because it is, uh, who's our, remind me the name of the scholar in the second section. I know. uh, um, uh, Tadio. Yeah. Tadio. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Thon Tadio. Uh, He is, he is looking for enlightenment, right? And the fruit of enlightenment happens in the final section, right? It happens right. with self-destruction. Yeah, um, a very bright light on yes. the horizon. <laughs> and yet, and yet, the monks also are making light. Um, and the, but they're but the light that they uh, create or revive, I guess, um, is overshadowed. <laughs> Uh, by the light of Christ that's replaced on the wall, a very significant moment in the story. And so that there's there's an ambiguity in in that section too. Let there be, let there be light. Let let there be the light of God. Let us give them over to the light that they seek in place of God, right? Yeah, and right. The there's a light that shines that, in the darkness, but the darkness comprehends it not. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the light that we that we ignite for ourselves leads to the destruction, self-destruction that happens in part three. Also, I think that let there be man, there's some, there's some in there too. Like there's, there's this idea of God's grace, his mercy, his sovereignty, um, uh, as understood by the monks, right. Um, and lived out by the monks, but also this sense of giving over continually, um, that, that we are, we are we, it reminds me of Lewis, right? All get what we want. We all right. want light. What kind of light do we want? Do we want the light of man? Do we want the light of God, right? Thy will be done. Do we want the will of God? Do we want the will of man? Um, as is the new man that's created by after the fall, that's preserved after the fall, worth preserving? Um, and, and, and if so, how and to what extent? Um, so I think that, the, that those titles raise philosophical questions and kind of guide the questions for each section um, and worth looking at from multiple sides. There's also that question too of, uh, you know, suffering that God seems to ask us to endure. 
in part three, uh, that that to say to God, thy will be done, is to say, uh, you know, as, as the abbot says, right, uh, allow me to uh, crush my legs right? <laughs> under a pile of rubble, uh, or let me die of radiation poisoning rather than, uh, you know, go commit suicide in a death camp. And that's difficult, to say the least. Okay, so let's end here with this one. Um, this is not from this is this is from me. This we're talking about the three parts Sneaky. here. We're talking about the three parts. Uh, which of the three parts in this book would you most want to be alive in? Definitely the second part. Go like, on. I mean, not Goodbye. even. There's no question for me. Go on. Um, well, okay, never mind. I said definitely, but I want I want to do those illuminated. I want to be a booklegger. I want to copy the memorabilia. Hold um, on, hold on. Re restate your question. So I guess I'm changing my answer. I said definitely, like so emphatically, and now I'm immediately changing my answer. Um <laughs> So that goes to tell you a lot Wait, about me. <laughs> so it's so which one is it? It's part one. I okay. want to be one of those. Uh, well, they're copying things. in book yeah. two as well. Yeah. When Thawne comes, uh, they're, they're really working on the yeah, there's science. There's something cool to me about being like gathering up and yeah, yeah, yeah. preserving in the face of um like as some like building something new so yeah, yeah, yeah. i i'm yeah. i'm going with part one and i want to work with the more dark ages yeah. period yeah yeah but yeah. i want to be illuminating those manuscripts and you know smuggling memorabilia <laughs> sean would you rather live in the the dark ages in the uh like old west era or in the future nuclear age <laughs> i'm conflicted because i think my i think my instinctive answer would be Heidi's also um well Heidi's reconsidered answer I think I think maybe part one but I I also I'm conflicted because it seems like the wrong answer Dang it. <laughs> that the more <laughs> that the more virtuous answer would be uh you know I hope that God would use me in in part three you know that if I had to choose it seems like I should go there uh, but I, okay. it is that is maybe the remarkable thing about the novel is that it presents these three periods in which uh, you know good and virtuous men are needed, maybe in different ways. And by men, I mean people. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe in in different capacities, but but needed nonetheless. So I I don't know if I had my my druthers, probably part one. David. Also, aesthetically, I would be a little bit sad that half the monastery had been replaced with, you know, like steel and glass buildings and yeah. part three and whatever's going on in part three. Yeah, I, I do. I was thinking about how, in in theory, the the one that is most like the world we live in, or that's got more of the amenities and the medicine and all that kind of stuff, actually is the most is even more broken than the Dark Ages one. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, agreed. we ask authors sometimes what on Withywindle, what historical period would you want to you know some kids sent in this question would you want to travel into and, and in theory you can come back in this hypothetical and the first question is always or the first comment that they make is always something about well you know the medicine during this dentistry, era, you know, dentistry. <laughs> and as long as i can come back i'd want to go to such and such a place um you know maybe i want to go to the ancient greeks or like victorian london but only if i can come home eventually yeah um so it got me thinking about about that in this book and how the ones that seem like they have the most amenities are not better than the ones that have the least amenities. The world right. is just as broken. Now, this is also not a book about the golden ages. And it does True. suggest that there are some ages that are golden or right. more better than others in between. Um, so this is about the the but 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 the a the third age, the third section is just as much of a dark age as the first section, even though it has the 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 amenities of that version of modern life. So yeah. I was thinking that's why I asked the question. So, um, all right. Any final thoughts from either of you on this book? Heidi, you want to go first? I'm just so glad we read it. I would never have read this book. Um, not because I wouldn't, I just don't really read sci-fi 
Right. And um, the, I feel like this is one of those books that Sean, you would have recommended to me and I'd be like, yes. And then I would buy it and then put it on my TBR list and kind of never <laughs> get to it. And I loved it. I hmm. loved it. I've been recommending it to everybody. I bought it for my brother for Christmas. Nice. Crazy about it. And it's been so thought provoking to me and mm. given me another term for our job and our life in the world. <laughs> I, now I do kind of feel book like legger. we're doing the work of book leggers, right? Right before, right before we have to pull people out of the death camps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sean, uh, this is a big book for you. You recommended it. Yeah. I'm also glad. I'm glad that people are glad that we read it. That was, I mean, it's, you know, it wasn't as risky as, say, the Netanyahu's, but. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Too soon, Sean. But it is one of those. <laughs> it's true. But it is, true. it is one of those books that it's a little weird, and I do also have a great affection for it. And so that can be nerve wracking, but I, I'm really glad that we. It's read weird it in a different way than Netanyahu's. That is true. For sure. That is absolutely true. All right. Well, up next, as I said, we have a very special. A one-off episode that you'd have to do no reading to enjoy. Now, you'll enjoy it more if you like books, particularly if you like books from a specific time. But that's all I'll say. Uh, then after that, we you will have to do a little work if you're going to keep up with Things Fall Apart. So again, don't forget that um, on the 11th, we will air an episode on part one of that. And that is about 125 pages. Um, then the 18th, will air part two. Somewhere around the 25th, we'll drop our best of the year books. And then a little after Christmas, most likely we'll have our, we'll run the Q and A. So that's kind of what the rest of the year looks like. And then we'll figure out, I might, we'll figure out, you know, book one for 2024, depending on whether PG Woodhouse is uh, available to enough readers. Anything else either of you want to add before we, uh, before we say farewell for today? Nope. All right. Okay. Well, you had a chance for Sean Johnson and for Heidi White. I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.